Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like the branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God, we pray that you would bless these words as they come to our ears, as they come to our hearts. We thank you for the life that is promised in Jesus the vine. We pray that you would help us to consider where we as branches stand in relationship to the vine. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you with really sharp memories and you take good notes. Uh, some of this, what you're going to hear today, is going to sound a tad familiar back when uh, we were going through the parables of Jesus. About four years ago, I did a, a few-month series on the parables of Jesus. This is not a parable. This is a metaphor, but I thought this would be important to cover in that series. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. But there's going to be some overlap, some of it modified, some of it a little bit different than the way I approached it a few years ago. But nevertheless, God's Word is going to speak in a very powerful way today from a very rich, very precious passage. I don't know if you've ever gone through a season of life, maybe you're in this right now, where you haven't gotten a whole lot of sleep and you were real tired. And, and what normally happens when you get maybe three or four hours sleep a night or you go a day or two, maybe three, without any sleep, what usually happens? <clears throat> Are you, you get cranky, don't you? You probably get in a bad mood and all you think about is sleep. And, and why is that? Friends, it's because God created you in such a way to sleep. Not in church, but but. When you're supposed to get rest, that's how God created you, to rest, to get sleep. What about this? <clears throat> what happens when you go a long time without eating? You lose weight. You lose weight. Yeah, that's one, that's one thing that can happen. What else? You go, you go a long time without eating, and, and maybe that's where you are right now. And you're praying that I would finally get to the point of the message so we can get out of here and have some lunch, Right. But what happens when you, we go a long time without eating? Normally, you start to think about food a lot. Or you start to think, man, just if, if I could just go and eat a meal, finally I would be satisfied. Normally, if you go a long time without eating, and this is me, myself, if I go without breakfast, man, I can become a bear. And it affects us. And why is that? Why, why does not getting sleep hurt you? Or not eating affect you, even, even the way... You respond to life. You can become irritable. Here's the reason. Number one, it has to do mainly with our hearts, but also God physically made you in such a way that you need sleep. 
You have to sleep. You don't function well without it. And God also created you in such a way that you have to eat. You do not live if you do not eat, eat food. That's your energy source. It's how God nourishes and strengthens your body so you can have food to eat and grow in the way that God wants you to grow and be healthy and all the other good things that come from the provision that God gives to us. And I want you to transition a little bit to what happens if we're not close to God. What happens when we disconnect from our power source and we're not living the way God created us to live? You ever thought about this? For those of you who are not Christians here today and, and maybe you've never come to faith in Christ, have you ever asked the question, why am I alive? Why am I here? And I would tell you this, every moment of your life, from the very moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, which is a miracle of God in and of itself, is it not? That requires a miracle. Everything that has to go right with that is a miracle from God. From you growing in your mother's womb and everything God does there. And the Bible uses a phrase like this, you were fearfully and wonderfully made, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and you were knitted together in your mother's womb. I have several things at home that uh, people in the church here, you've knitted together. And that takes a lot of work and it's a lot of intricacies with that, a lot of details with that. That's how God made you in a profoundly uh, deeper way. He created you in your mother's womb and he brought you together and, and everything from your DNA and the fact that he grew you physically in the womb and then the miracle of birth itself. You know where all that points to? The fact that you're healthy enough to be in church today, you know what that points to? It points to God's glory. That's why God created us. And that's why God made us. But if our lives do not connect to our power source, we will never live for God's glory. It's not going to happen. So where does the strength come from to do that? Where does the power come from to do that sort of thing? And you find it here in this rich passage. This passage here, this, this beautiful metaphor, the imagery that's used here, teaches you who your source of power is. And not only that, how you can connect to him and how you stay connected to him. It's kind of like when you walk through an airport, you find people walking quickly. In one area of the airport, you always find full besides the eating area and the bathroom. You normally find the power station full of people and everyone's looking to devices, and they want to make sure that their cell phone never runs out of energy. They, they need to connect to their power source. But for us as Christians, who is that source? Who do we go to? And this passage points you to who your source is. So think of it for a moment. All the incredible blessings we enjoy as believers, the joy of knowing Christ, the joy of enjoying God's love, knowing we're created by him, knowing we're created to bring glory to him, knowing his presence never leaves us. All of these wonderful blessings are only possible if you abide in him. And the passage we're looking at today is not a parable because a parable is a story with a separate interpretation. I taught on that a few years ago. A metaphor, which is what this passage is, provides its own interpretation. And that's what this passage will do for you today. Seven times in John's gospel, Jesus uses the phrase, I am. And he would use a human expression to convey the truth that he indeed is divine, that he is God. 
So he would say, I am the living waters. I am the good shepherd. I am, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And he would use that so we could understand from our perspective what he was trying to convey. Jesus is God. This is the purpose for why God placed this book in the canon of Scripture, in your Bible. And you've heard me quote every week for several weeks here, John 20, verse 31. Maybe you know it by heart at this point. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in who? In his name. And John wanted his readers to clearly understand something. Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Word that became flesh. And that through him, you can have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, new life. You can be born again. You can understand what it means to really have peace and joy and contentment and understand God's presence will never leave you. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of every true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can have comfort in a world that is very troubling. And that brings us to our text today. So the last couple of weeks we've looked at what, what is the Holy Spirit or who is the Holy Spirit who lives inside of every true follower of Christ. And Jesus had brought up the fact that even though I'm leaving you and even though I'm going away, that's actually to your advantage. You're better off if that happens. Why? Because if I go away, the paraclete, the comforter, will come and he will live inside of you. That brings us to this passage that we're looking at this morning. What does it look like when you live a life that is indwelt by the Spirit of God and controlled by the Spirit of God? What does that look like? John chapter 15 will flesh that out for you. Here's, here's what it looks like. Here's the visual imagery. And I would encourage you, if, if you're new in the Lord today, and, and let's say you're a newer Christian, and you're not very fluent in the books of the Bible yet, and when uh, we say things in church that are just common language for us as followers of Christ, it's still a little confusing to you because you're new in the Lord. And you're wondering, how can I grow in Christ? What are, what are some of my first steps? I'd encourage you to become very familiar with this passage, especially verses 1 through 8. This will help you understand what it means to really grow in the Lord and be connected to him. And I'd also encourage you, if you're discipling anybody, you're helping another follower of Christ become more like Christ, I would encourage you to use this passage. This is a very helpful passage to help people grow and change. And I also want to address one more group today. And this can happen a lot in a church like ours. Maybe, just maybe today, you're in a season of life where there's a lot of spiritual apathy. And you're not very close to the word. You're not walking closely with God. And the word is not a great treasure in your life anymore. It used to be, but it's not right now. And you don't necessarily look forward to your prayer time with God. You just feel spiritually uh, drained. you just kind of worn out spiritually. And, and there's not that hunger, that desire, that passion for the Lord that you once had. And maybe you find yourself today in a spiritual slumber. Maybe your marriage is in a spiritual slumber. It might even be that right now, 
you might not even look forward to church very much. And you don't look forward to spending time with God's people. Can I encourage you today to really allow your heart to be humbled by this passage and seriously, sincerely, in a very diligent way, consider the truths of this, of this message we're going to look at today. This will help you get back connected to your source of power. And your source of power, your source of strength, and you'll find out later on in this chapter, your source of joy must be Christ. And friend, every one of us will find ourselves in a spiritual slumber if we don't understand what this is all about or who this is all about. It's all about bringing glory to our Savior. So ask yourself this question today. How can my life manifest the life of Christ? How can my life do this? And we're going to look at this text today, and I want you to see four casts of characters that you have to get in order to understand the point of this passage. So follow with me carefully as we understand where we're going to go with this. And it's basically this. Here's the one central truth I want you to take home. Without the power of Christ, you're powerless to live for Christ. Without the power of Christ, you are powerless to live for Christ. Look with me at the four characters we'll look at today. The four metaphors Jesus uses. You have the true vine, that's Jesus. He says that in verse 1. You have the Father, Jesus says this, is the vine dresser. Then you have fruitful branches. And I believe this represents genuine believers. You find that in verse 5. Then you find fruitless branches. Branches that don't produce any type of fruit. And I believe that represents false professors of faith. They make a profession of faith, but as time goes on, it, it demonstrates they really don't know the Lord. We'll look at all four of these groups today and ask yourself, okay, how can the life of Christ be manifested in my life? Here's the first thing we'll look at, is that we must submit to the changing process, the painful, sometimes tedious changing process. Look at verse 1 again. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, here's an important phrase here you want to get in verse 1. Jesus uses the term vine. His audience would have gotten this really clearly because this was a common Jewish phrase. You find it in books of the Bible like Psalms, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Jer uh, Isaiah used this as well. But here's, here's the kicker I want you to get with this. Every time the word vine is used in the Old Testament, it's used in a negative way. It's used in a way that Israel has failed. Israel has not lived up to what God wanted her to do. It makes a negative reference to Israel's rebellion. So Jesus wants his followers to know that Israel represented a shadow of who Jesus is. Jesus is not just a vine. Jesus is the true vine. The true vine who always pleases the Father. Now jump down to verse 2. And here's an important phrase that Jesus uses. I count about 16 times in John's gospel alone. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Those words in me are important because what it conveys here is fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fellowship with him. So you don't just know the Lord. Here's what you do as a Christian. When you think of fellowship, 
Let's not think of talking politics or sports or hobbies. That's social activity. When you think of fellowship, think of this. Think of that Greek word koinonia. Most of you know this. It means sharing life. You share life with one another. You, you share spiritual life with one another. And literally what he's trying to get across is sharing life with Jesus. Now, if any branch was to survive, if it was to grow, if it was to blossom, if it was to function the way that it was created to function, it had to be connected to the, to the vine. And not just any vine, the true vine. And according to verse 1, church, who's the true vine? Jesus. And then you get to verse 2, the Father does two things. The first thing he does is this. Look, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Your translation might say this, cuts off. He cuts off that vine if it doesn't bear fruit. Now, here's what you find. And Jesus used the same imagery in the parable of the sower and the seed. It may show that it's growing for a little bit. It may show signs of life. It may show that it's genuine. But as time goes on, it shows that it's really fruitless. There's no fruit there at all. There's nothing genuine there. So what happens? He cuts it off. And I want to tell you this as a church, we want to be really careful. and We've worked really hard at this, and we're not perfect at this by any stretch of the imagination. But one thing we try to do by God's grace is to make sure that people who join the church or come and get baptized are genuinely people who show fruit of being a follower of the Savior, meaning there's really a change that's happened in their life. We've examined that. We've looked at that. They can articulate the gospel. There's something that has changed in their life. Now, we've not been perfect about that. Do I think I've baptized people who, in the long run, showed fruit of probably not being regenerate? Sure, that's happened. That's not happened because we've sincerely tried to do that. That's happened simply because for a time in that person's life, it showed and it demonstrated that it seemed like they were a Christian at that time. But as time goes on and as fruit doesn't seem to appear, you find out that maybe they weren't truly connected to the true vine. Now, most people would say this, and I would agree with this. This wasn't the typical interpretation of this over the 20th century, but I, I really believe, based on what the text says, just take the text at face value. Most would say this is referring to false professors of faith. They never were truly genuinely saved. They never were truly genuinely regenerate. Now, why would I say that? Look at the text. Let the text speak for itself. It says they're cut off. They're taken away. And friend, I hope you understand this. A true believer, a true follower of Jesus Christ can never fall from grace. They can never stop being God's child. They will always be his. The other reason is this, and here's what I think is the kicker of the slam dunk. They're fruitless. There's no fruit in their lives. And I believe this with all my heart, and I believe Scripture teaches this. And friend, you've heard me say this over and over again because I believe it's the fruit of a life that is truly regenerate and born again and raised to walk in newness of life. A truly forgiven Christian will be a fruitful Christian. There's going to be fruit in their lives. It doesn't all grow at the same pace. But friend, it is going to grow. 
there's going to be fruit there. I like the way D.A. Carson writes about this. He says, the transparent purpose of this verse is to insist that there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. Fruitfulness, and I like the way he words this, is an infallible mark of true Christianity. And here's what the Father does with these branches. Look again at verse 3, if you would. Or verse 2, rather. He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? That it may bear more fruit. So here's what he does. He prunes these branches, not because he's hateful, not because he's angry or mad, or because he's unkind to his children. He does this so they bear more fruit. Now, what does this word uh, uh, prune mean? It's katharizo in the Greek, and it simply means this. It means to purify, to cleanse, to make more pure. And this is what God does to these branches. And what it is, is the idea is that it removes anything that's detrimental, Anything that gets in the way, any type of impurity. Years ago, we were first married. I worked in a metal foundry. And you would put all these materials, all these different elements inside the furnace. And what would rise to the top is these things would melt. The dross. And you'd get the impurities out. And this is what God does in our lives. He gets the dross out of our lives. He gets the impurities out of our lives. And why does he do this? So, look at verse 2. We would bear more fruit. Now, here's the question you want to wrestle with. Okay, so God's pruning me. God's growing me. How does he do this? Verse 3 gives you the answer. Look at verse 3, if you would. Already you are clean because of, get this here, the word that I have spoken to you. How does God do this? He does it through the logos, the Greek word here, through the word Jesus' word is the life that gives the branches the ability to live and to grow and to be fruitful. You can't get away from the word. You have to have the word. In verse 2, you find the process, okay? In verse 3, the cleansing is a position. You are, look at verse 3, you're clean. And how did that happen? It's through the word that I spoke to you. There's an old phrase sounds like a cliche, but, but it's really true. And you might have it written down in your Bible. I have a few Bibles that this is written down in. And it says this, sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. How many of you ever heard that before? I think the majority of you have. It's, it's very true, I believe. And when you think of a passage like this, I want you to consider this. Yes, the blood of Jesus washes you pure from all of your sins. 1 John 1, 7 is a great reference for that. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But it's the word of God that keeps you clean from sin. It's a constant exposure, a constant digestion of truth. So when you're connected to the true vine, think of this. God will always do what's necessary for you to be a fruitful, growing thriving, clean, holy, pure branch that reflects the true vine. And I hope you know this. How many of you realize pruning sometimes can be painful? Do you, how many of you realize that? That's a painful process. It's not that easy. And I want to tell you some ways that God can do this. 
God can prune us sometimes by humbling us profoundly. And when we are humbled, we're not thinking it's a great honor to be humbled like this, but it's good for us. It's good for us to be humbled. God can do this sometimes through relationships maybe where we've created an idol. Maybe through possessions that we've created as an idol and, and God takes those things away. Could be position, could be prestige, could be power, could be all of those things. And God takes those things away to prune us, to make us more like his son. Could be a difficult marriage. Could be the death of a loved one. Could be struggles with children. Could be struggles with parents. Might be struggles with, a, with a, an employer at work. Could be physical ailments that you have. It could be your thorn in the flesh. But I can rest, you can rest assured, friend, all of us here today who are Christians, God prunes his children. He cleanses them. He purifies them. Why does he do that? So we would be fruitful. Where does fruit point to? We're going to get to that in verse 8. Ultimately, it points to God's glory. So let's say you're in the middle of it right now. Let's look at the big picture. God is going to complete this. God is going to bring everything to completion one day, and that might even be today. Jesus Christ could come back for his church today. That might happen, and we have to be confident and convinced that he who began a good work in us he will bring it to completion. Let's read this together as brothers and sisters in Christ together. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Let's read together Philippians 2 verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Expect this to happen. The closer you get to God, and this is why I'm convinced a lot of people avoid a closeness, and intimacy with God. The closer you get to God, you can expect this, the more he's going to cut out detrimental and wasteful things in your life. Things that are hurting you spiritually. Things that are an entanglement. Hebrews 12.1 calls them a weight or a measure. God's going to cut those things off. He'll cut out anything that's hindering the process for you to grow and change the image of Christ. It's happened to me on several occasions where I go to the airport and I go to check in, and my luggage is too heavy. Has that ever happened to you before? Your luggage is too heavy. And, and so what they say is you can change it up a little bit, and you could put some in the other suitcase, and it might work then. What do you think I do at that moment? You think I say, you know what? It's, it's not working. I'm done. I bought the tickets. I'm leaving. I'm going home. I don't care. I'm not going to do that. Why would I not do that? That'd be a waste of money. You spend good money on tickets. You want to make sure you get on that plane. So what do I do? In front of everybody in line, in front of everyone who can see, I open up a suitcase and I start taking things and I move them into another suitcase so I can get to my destination. But in order to get there, I got to change some things around. And friend, this is what God is doing in our lives. God is taking off the entanglements, the dross, the weight of sin, and he's pruning you. He prunes, he purifies his people. And God is going to cut out things like sinful habits, sinful ways of speech, sinful patterns. Maybe even today you're thinking of a sinful relationship. It's not pleasing to God. It's going places you know God doesn't want you to go. 
maybe even sinful friendships, things that you know are just a weight and a measure. And relationships with the lost will start to change. They'll go from wanting to fit in to wanting to reach them with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the pruning process. And here's what God wants to do. He wants us to submit to this process because it's good. And God is faithful. And he does this not because he hates us and dead sure not because he's against you. God does this because he loves us. Amen, friends? He loves us. Let's submit to that process. The second thing, if you want the life of Jesus to be manifested in your life, is to abide in Christ. Look at me at verse 4, if you would. And Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Let's pause here because you have to understand something. The Christian life is more than just believing a historical message. It's more than that. It's more than just saying, I believe in a creed or I believe in a doctrinal statement. That's a big part, but it goes deeper. It also involves sharing life. We share life together and God is actively involved right now in every circumstance you're facing. Everything you're going through in life, he's actively involved in making you more useful for his glory. And these verses now give you your responsibility in response to this. Now look at verse 3 again. Notice the word abide. What does this mean? How would you explain to another person what it means to abide in Christ? That's a biblical phrase. It's important. How would you explain that? What does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, that word abide literally means to remain. It means to remain in. It's a key word that John uses quite a bit. I think 27 times in his gospel and his epistles alone. And the, the idea here is this. The vine, who is Jesus, is your power source. And in order for the branches that grow out of that vine... In order for them to grow and produce fruit, which is what they were made to do, you expect a, uh, an apple tree to grow apples, a peach tree to grow peaches. You expect Christians to bear fruit. So in order for that to happen, they have to be connected. They have to be connected to the power source. They must abide in Christ. So what does this mean? How do you abide in Christ? Let me share with you a, a couple helpful definitions that have helped me uh, think through this a little bit more. How, how do we explain to another person, you must abide in Christ? And here's what this looks like. I want you to listen to the words of Sinclair Ferguson, helpful theologian, pastor, author, who explains this well. Abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, to direct our wills, to transform our affections, in other words, our relationship to Christ is intimately connected to what we do with our Bibles. So it means this. I give up my authority to the authority of his word. So whatever I think about anything, I have to ask and I have to filter it through the ultimate authority. And that's not me. That is God's word. So the authority is not, this is how I feel about something. That's not the authority. The authority is this. This is what God says about something. So it's not, it's not, here's how I feel and here's how I see it. This is what scripture definitively says about this. 
We give up our glory for God's glory. From the moment we took our first breath, we, we've been chasing glory of our own. And what God does in our lives when he saves us, he transforms our affections, our desires, what we want. No longer is it glorify me, now we want to glorify him. We give up our plans for his plans. We give up our life for his glory alone. Essentially, you can narrow it down to this. Not my will, share it with me, say it with me if you would, but thine be done. Not my will, not mine anymore, but yours be done. My will will lead to catastrophe and disaster. God's will leads to glory. And where do you find God's will, friends? You find it in his word. Here's another helpful definition of this. Uh, Ray Stedman writes this, when our Lord says, abide in me, he is talking about the will, about our choices, the decisions we make. And we must desire to do things which expose ourselves to him and keep ourselves in contact with him. This is what it means to abide in him. Now look at the text again and ask yourself this question. Who is the one group that abides in Christ? It's those who are connected to the vine. It's those branches who are connected to him. Now look at verse 5. And Jesus will remind them as to who the power source is. Familiar verse, I hope you know it well. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do how much, friends? Nothing. Jesus reminds them, since he is the vine and they are the branches, everyone who is truly connected to him will bear fruit. But how? Only by his power. Only by the power that he supplies. And these branches are not just to produce fruit. They're to produce much fruit. Well, what fruit would that be? Well, think of the immediate context of this. Jesus in the upper room, the night before he would be crucified on the cross, he's about to be arrested, falsely accused, blasphemed, spit upon, and die a torturous, cruel death. But yet in the midst of that, he's teaching about things like serving one another, loving one another. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. I'm giving to you peace and I'm giving to you joy in a troubled world. Later on, he would teach them how to pray a little bit more specifically, and then how we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, can live together in unity and not in division. He gets into that in his high priestly prayer. And if you look at verse 6 here, jump down. If anyone does not abide in me, and here's where you understand here, the two groups he's referring to, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This, friends, is why you cannot say, I don't think legitimately or biblically, that the fruitless branches are truly believers. Because I don't think you can apply verse 6 to a truly born-again believer. We are saved from God's wrath. We are saved from God's judgment because that was poured out upon Christ at the cross, and now he reiterates the truth again in verse 7. Look at verse 7, if you would. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So the idea of this verse is this. It's not, 
God will give you every selfish desire that you have because we all have selfish desires. There are some things I could think of right now in my mind selfishly that I would love for God to give to me. Selfishly. But they wouldn't necessarily be in line with God's desires. So he says this, if your desires line up with God's desires and they're not selfish and they're not sinful, but they line up with the name of Christ, you can ask whatever you wish. Why? Because then what you're asking for actually pleases God. Can you think of all the times you've prayed in life? Has there ever been at least one, maybe two times where you've prayed for something selfishly? Has that ever happened before? And you look back and as you've grown in the Lord and you become more like Christ, you realize it's really a good thing that didn't happen in my life. Maybe you prayed for revenge. Maybe you prayed you could get something back at somebody for, and you think, oh, I want to take matters into my own hands. I want to get back at them. And you think, boy, I sure am glad God didn't answer that prayer. I sure am glad God didn't give me what I wanted. I want you to think of like a Psalm 37 verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So whatever you wish is not when you wish upon a star. It's nothing like that, friends. Instead, it's Christ-like. It's in line with the name of Christ. So how can I know what to pray for? How do I know what's right? How do I know what pleases God? How do I know what kind of prayers God is delighted to answer? You find that in his word. You look in the word. The more time you spend in the word, the more time you expose yourself to the truth of scripture, the more your desires will be aligned with God's desires. That is why you're going to hear this drumbeat over and over again here at Calvary, that you got to be close to the word. J.C. Ryle wrote this well several years, many years ago, nearly a couple hundred years ago now. By reading the Bible, we learn what to believe, what to be, what to do, how to live with comfort, how to die in peace. Happy is the man who possesses a Bible. You believe that? Are you happy you have the Bible? Happier still is the one who reads it. Happiest of all is he who not only reads it, but obeys it and makes it the rule of his faith and practice. Let's look at a couple passages that help us reflect on this. Let's read together 2 Timothy 3 verses 14 through 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Romans 15 verse 4. Let's read this together. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Colossians 3.16 talks about letting this word dwell in you richly. Together as a church, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And friends, not being closely connected to the Bible is like a human being who goes a long time without sleep or without food or a smartphone that's not connected to their power source. What's going to happen is it eventually dies. It lacks the power, it lacks the strength to do what it was created to do. 
friend, you breathe today, you have blood running through your veins, you're alive today to bring glory to God. That's why we live. And Sunday morning is not enough. Just as you wouldn't charge your smartphone once a week, if you're really going to grow in Christ, you cannot just expose yourself to the word once a week. It's got to be a daily intake. And fruitful Christians, fruitful Christians, they're forgiving people, they're loving people, they're gracious people. Uh, They're not known for grudges or bitterness or harboring hatred in their heart. Fruitful Christians who are generous and kind and and growing in the fruit of the Spirit, inevitably what you're going to find in their life, it's not the fact that they're superhuman or super Christian. You're going to find this. They're super close to the Word, more than likely. They're close to the Word. They have an intimate, close, precious relationship with the Word. Last thing we'll look at today. How do you manifest the life of Jesus in your life? And that is to live for his glory. Here's where this whole passage is going today. It's all going to this one climax. Look at verse 8, if you would. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The word glorified, doxaso, and, and where we get our word doxology from, it means to exalt, to uplift, to praise. So when we say glorify God, we're saying praise God, uplift him. So how is the Father glorified in our lives? It's when we, as his followers, the branches, bear much fruit. So it looks like this. When people see our lives, they will see flawed people. And and there's going to be some level of hypocrisy in all of our lives because we are fallen. And as Christians, we believe a message and we believe in a Savior whose standard we always fail to meet. But here's what we can do. Yes, we fall short of God's glory. Yes, we miss the mark. But here's what people can see in our lives when they look at us. They can see little snippets. They can can see little reflections here and there of the character of Christ in our lives. So just as your children... Your biological children look like you to some extent. They share your physical traits. And in many ways, for good or for ill, they share our personalities in many ways. They, they look like us. And for us, as children of our Heavenly Father, what people should see in us when we bear fruit, they're getting little glimpses of Christ-likeness in our lives. And it's shown with this, the way we love each other, it's shown in our joy. We live in such a grumpy world that, that's so unhappy. But you, Christian friends, and Jesus is going to get to this later on in the passage. In, in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that you may have joy and that your joy might be full. When you're joyful, you're Christ-like. And it's not based on your circumstances. It's based on the Savior who you know. It's, it's, it's shown when we demonstrate forgiveness and hospitality. It's shown when we humbly confess, you know, I was wrong here and I need to ask for forgiveness. It's shown in our generosity. It's shown in our care and our compassion for others. It's shown when one person hurts, we all hurt. It's shown when we weep with those who weep and when we rejoice with those who rejoice. It's shown in the way we talk about things. That we can talk about things like politics, 
and even sports. And we could talk about things even that we disagree with and still be kind and gracious and loving with each other. Amen, friends? We could even talk about things like music and still lovingly disagree. We could talk about things that are preferential things, not central to the gospel as Christians, and when we talk to each other, still have a gracious, loving spirit. That's a glimpse of Christ-likeness, of Christ-like character taking root in your heart and manifesting itself in the fruit that is growing in our lives. According to this text, discipleship and bearing fruit is not about exalting us. It's all about lifting up and exalting our Heavenly Father. The power alone comes from Christ, and the glory alone belongs to God. There's nothing here we could boast about, and Jesus is glorified in our lives as we bring glory to the Father, and Jesus, just as he's glorified the Father, we're to glorify God with our lives as well. So how do you know if you're being Christ-like? Ask yourself this question. Is my life, for the most part, despite there being inconsistencies with all of us. But is my life, the trajectory of my life, pointing to the glory of Christ? Or does it point to our abilities, our talents, our earthly accomplishments? So friend, if God uses you in some way, let's say God uses you to lead someone to faith in Christ. Give praise to God. If God uses your marriage and people look at your marriage and they see decades of faithfulness, and they see a real true joy and love that you guys have for one another, a real affection, and, and that you model Christ-likeness with your marriage. And somebody says, thank you for exemplifying that in your marriage. Give praise to God. If someone looks at you and, and, and wants you to help with some sort of need, perhaps that's financial, perhaps it's some sort of physical need, and you're able to help them, give praise to God. If God uses you to teach the Bible, to teach theology to others, to better understand the Bible, maybe even to give counsel to someone, friends, give praise to God. If God uses you to sing a song, to play a special, to encourage others in some way, and somebody tells you that was an encouragement to them, let's say it together, give praise to God. And just as your smartphone, if it's disconnected, is going to die and wither away, Let's do a little heart check time here, and let's, let's pause and just ask this question. If your life were a smartphone, how much battery life would it have in it right now? What percentage would you be at? Because, friends, your vitality, your long-term service to the Lord, your perseverance, your strength, your fruitfulness, your power, it rests in the true vine. It rests in Christ, and we must, if we're going to be God's people, living the way God wants us to live, fulfilling his ultimate purpose for our lives, we must be connected to our power source. Because friends, we as Christians, without the power of Christ, we're absolutely powerless to live for Christ. Write your struggle down today. Take that struggle to the Lord. Think of maybe a joyless heart today, a heart that's really not close to him, or maybe a heart of discontentment. Take this to him and realize he is the sufficient power 
to live in a way that brings glory to him. Would you bow in prayer with me if you would? Let's come before him, trusting in his character, trusting in who he is, and trusting in his power. Father, we come before you, believing what you say about yourself in your word. You are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are your children, and you command us to be fruitful, and we confess when we try that in our own power, we produce bad fruit, self-centered fruit. And so I pray the fruit of our lives would reflect Christ-likeness, would reflect the character of our Savior and his great love for us. So Father, help us, I pray, to remain close to you. For those today who may be in a spiritual slumber where the joy has left them, and there's not the closeness, there's not the intimacy with you, I pray that today they'd realize that can change right now. Give them, I pray, a heart of repentance, a heart of confession, Father, and to realize it is your kindness, it is your goodness that leads us to repentance. So, Father, I pray that you would find us faithful, growing, always abounding in you, knowing that our work is never in vain. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, amen.